and uh, go ahead and turn your Bible to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at two verses, primarily focusing on one of them. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 20 and 21. So as I mentioned, if you just walked in, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse. And uh, man, it's been good uh, being home. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed some time off. I know some of you have already been at work for a week. Some of you have been at work this whole time. But as far as the Christmas and the New Year holidays, hope you enjoyed some time off with friends and family. It's at this portion of our time that I feel it's so cliche to begin to talk about our 2020 vision uh, for what we believe God is going to be doing doing here at Storehouse. And so I thought I would take just about two or three minutes, maybe longer because I'm long-winded. I would take a couple of minutes just to kind of share what I believe God is mm, calling us to, reminding us in light of this brand new year, kind of. I mean, we're like a week and a half in. Nevertheless, about uh, a couple of months before we uh, started looking at things for 2020, just really began uh, to pray and think about where and what the Lord was leading in regarding the 2020 year. And if I'm honest, this part always tends to intimidate me a little bit when it comes to vision casting. Um, one of the questions I hate the most is, where do you see yourself five years from now? I'm not that guy. I don't think, you know, two, three, four, five years ahead into the future. I can tell you what I'm doing on Tuesday at one, but that's about it. Like, I'm, I'm just not really strong in that area. But nevertheless, that is a muscle I needed uh, to work out. And so as I began to just pray and ask the Lord, man, what is it that um, I guess suppose is going to be a great emphasis for 2020? Um, as I was praying, one thing that was really laid heavily on my heart in that time uh, was spiritual maturity. Now that doesn't sound so like popping and wow and all these things are going to happen. But nevertheless, I do believe it's incredibly important I think it's incredibly important because I think sometimes churches can get lost in the minutia of, well, what kind of events are we doing? What kind of ministries are we starting? What are all of these things that we're going to be doing? I think that's good, and we are going to be doing some of that, and we are praying for favor and opportunity in many areas, and several of our ministries are growing, and all of that is wonderful, and I love that, and I can't wait for you to be a part of that. I can't wait for that to be executed. Like, I love all of that, and I believe that the goal for 2020 is for us to grow in our spiritual maturity and something that we have already been called to. Now, before I elaborate on that, I just want to make one thing clear. As we begin to talk much about spiritual maturity over the next year, this isn't necessarily like a, a, a box that you check for 2020. Like we're going to, Lord willing, conclude 2020, 2020 and say, oh man, I am officially spiritually mature. What is the next thing, Lord? Like if, if that is where you go in your head at the end of this year, at the end of this sermon, then, then we failed right? And so specifically as it pertains to spiritual maturity, here are two areas that I believe we, and I'm saying we, us, storehouse, not church, the big C, not a, like us, right? Here are the two areas regarding spiritual maturity that I believe we need to grow in. The first one is going to be dependence. Some of you maybe like goals, right? Maybe you love the start of the new year because you're all about the resolutions, you're all about the goals, you're all about new year, new me, like maybe you've written some stuff down on your whiteboard, right? And maybe it's kind of vague. Maybe you've said something similar, like, oh, I just want to depend on God more. I mean, that's cool. I just don't like it, right? I want to dive further into what it means to depend on God. What, what I believe it means for us to depend on God regarding spiritual maturity is that we depend on him to change our hearts, that we depend on him to change other people's hearts that we cannot change, I believe that what it means to depend on God is to place our trust in him because we are realistic about understanding and knowing our limits. I believe what it means to depend on God as we walk into this season is to embrace the gospel as the work of God for us in Christ rather than embracing self-sufficiency. And I think, as I'm going to address that in just a little bit, when it comes to self-sufficiency and pulling your, your own bootstraps and new year, new me, like, that's probably the biggest thing that concerns me. I'll talk about that in a minute. But spiritual maturity includes dependence. Spiritual maturity includes discernment. 
Like discernment doesn't only mean knowing what to do and what kind of decision you ought to make. Discernment means aligning our will with God's will. The Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, align your will with God's will and then you will have your will. Discernment includes aligning our will with God so that we would please God, so that we would be sanctified. That means that we would grow in our love and our understanding for who God is and what he has done for us in Christ while at the same time growing in our hatred for sin. I believe spiritual maturity means to grow in our dependence and discernment of God. Now, when we look at that, that's something we've already been called to. Like, that's something, those are areas we ought to be growing in. The concern is I don't think we're doing a great job in it. Maybe that's too harsh. Maybe I should say these are just areas that we just need to improve in. Many talk about 2020 as being a good year, and I think so. I think 2020 is going to be a great year, right? Uh, but this, is, this might just be the cynic in me, or maybe it's just because I... I press myself to be a realist. Like, yes, I think 2020 is going to be a great year, and I also know hardship is coming. And so when it happens, not if, but when it happens, how does spiritual maturity, how does the, the, the maturity that we are being pressed in to grow in, to mature in, how does that apply to hardship? How does that apply when it's, what is it, January 11th, and it's already a crappy week. Like, I'm just going to be honest, right? I want us to be realistic about that. But I also want to celebrate big wins. I want to celebrate the fact that, man, people have come to grow in their understanding of Jesus. I want to celebrate salvations, God's work, uh, God's redeeming work in individuals. I want to celebrate what God is doing. In our, like, those are all good things. And I just don't want us to miss out on us growing in dependence and discernment. And so as we begin this, this is a good, hard transition, but as we begin this new series, we're titling it Our Faithful Pursuit. As we begin this new series, we're going to simply walk through our values here at Storehouse, and, and what I want you to notice over the next five weeks is that these values are minimal but biblical. In addition to that, I'm going to tell you right now, all right, you ready? They're simple, they're just not easy. That's probably going to be the mantra for 2020, right? Like simple, but not easy. And that's why I believe the purpose of this next season is to be sanctified in our maturity, right? So with that being said, that was my vision cast, right? Great, spiritual maturity, that's awesome. People are like, but what are we going to do? What you're going to notice is all of our sermon series, our ministries, the content that we're going to be releasing, some of the things that we have planned for 2020 are all going to come under this category, this umbrella of what is spiritual maturity. All of it is going to come under that. Simple, not easy. Yeah, that's the mantra. Let's, let's officially claim it. All right, here we go. This is Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. This is what the Apostle Paul writes, right? And some of you may already have this tattooed. Like this is, a, this is a wonderful tattoo verse, right? Some might have it on the wrist and say, of course not. But here we go. This is what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let me pray. God, as, we, uh, as our hearts um, have been prepped and primed uh, through the reading of Scripture, through the singing of songs, uh, God, would you meet us where we are as we uh, dive into your word. God, would you not only encourage us, but exhort us through your Holy Spirit? Would it be your word that penetrates and discerns 
the intentions and condition of our heart this morning. God, I pray that those who know Jesus would come to know Jesus better. And those who do not know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know Jesus this morning. God, as we begin or start or continue this, uh, this new year, and as we look to what it means to, to grow in spiritual maturity and dependence and discernment, as we look at those uh, characteristics, may the end product be us becoming more like Jesus. And so, God, we thank you for this time that we are get to spend together in the worship of your preached word and the singing of songs and prayer. God, I pray that you would be glorified in this time and pray that I would be set aside and that it would be you, Spirit, at work this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're going to pursue growth, and I think I'm yelling, I'm just passionate, I'm sorry. Anyway, if we're going to grow or if we're going to pursue growth or sanctification as it pertains to spiritual maturity, then we must begin with our identity. See, here at Storehouse, we preach who you are determines what you do. Say that one more time. Who you are determines what you do. Your problem and my problem is that we are forgetful. We are forgetful of who we are in light of God's work done for us in Christ that we default fairly quickly to who we used to be. And when this happens, whether it's for a moment or a season, we begin to look for someone or something other than Jesus to give us meaning, value, and purpose. For some, it can look like destructive decisions, and you can insert whatever it is your imagination would like to insert into that big category. So for some, it's destructive decisions, maybe just poor decisions. For some, it's holding on to something else that's not Jesus that simply would give them value. Not that it's bad, but if you go to any gym right now, it's full, it's packed. Everybody is new year, new me, new body. I'm gonna do a bicep curl, right? Like, let's, let's get this done. And that might not necessarily be a bad thing, but there is something that is pulling the heartstrings of those individuals. There's something that might be pulling you away from Jesus. Now here's what's even more dangerous because I could say that and we could say, you're right, something else is pulling you. That means you're being lured. The problem with you and I is that we're not just lured, we are enticed by other things that aren't Jesus to ultimately satisfy us and give us fulfillment. There is a difference between being lured and being enticed. Lured means you're being tempted, that it is calling out to you. Enticed means that you bite down on the bait. And I would also add that that is a decision we make. Oftentimes, the church will look at destructive behavior or even some of the things where people go left or they go too far to an extreme. The church sometimes sees that and says, man, I want to avoid that. I'm not gonna do some of those sinful behaviors. I'm not gonna radically change this. I want to avoid that. And again, to a degree, that's, that's good, but that doesn't make you immune to being lured, and that doesn't make you immune to being enticed. And so over the course of last year, there were a couple of resources and books and phrases, some of them are much older than last year, that, that many people began to hold on to. Many people began to hold on to these philosophies and, and some of these ideologies. And, and here's the thing, a lot of what I'm gonna share can be found in the Christian living section at Barnes & Noble. Yeah. 
there was this one book, actually several, but one in particular that made the New York uh, best-selling top sellers list in 2019. It is located in the Christian Living Book. I didn't even write it down, but nevertheless, as you check it out, it says nothing about Jesus and says nothing about repentance. But we do hear a lot of believing yourself. Believing yourself. The philosophy of believing in yourself suggests that salvation is actually found within. The philosophy of believing yourself suggests that revelation is actually something you find within yourself. However, the Bible doesn't teach believing yourself. The Bible teaches deny yourself. Deny yourself and revelation is imparted to you by the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. That's big difference. Or maybe you haven't heard some of that. Maybe, maybe you've heard, it's like God wants you to be a victor. He wants you to be a, not a victim, but a victor. It's crazy, because when we read through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we're gonna be persecuted. When we read through 1 Peter, he says you will suffer because our Savior suffered. In fact, he, he goes on to say, or the writer goes on to say, that when you hit hard times, when it gets really, really hard, you have a Savior who sympathizes with you. Because he gets it. He experienced it. He walked in our shoes in a capacity that you and I cannot understand. You and I are tempted by sin, and so was Christ. However, you and I give in to temptation. And when we give in to temptation, right, when we, when we go ahead and are enticed by temptation, that temptation kind of flees for a little bit, and then it comes back, right? We talk about that all the time. We confess our sin to one another in light of that. Jesus never gave in. Jesus never gave in. His level of enduring temptation is on a different capacity than you and I, but nonetheless, he can sympathize with us. Maybe you've heard this one, let God and let go, right? Maybe you put it on hashtags on Instagram. Those of you who are laughing, affirm, like confirm that theory, <laughs> right? Let God and let go. That's a song, isn't it? Right? Is it? No? No, it's not. Well, it's a dumb song. Anyway, here we go. <laughs> Like, let God and let go. The idea, the, the philosophy behind let God and let go actually drives us away from dependence. Dependence in the sufficiency of Scripture because of what God has done for us in Christ. Let God and let go says that I am self-sufficient and it's just going to work itself out. There is this um, pseudo-belief that, yeah, God's in control. That just means I'm not going to do anything about it. However, as God reconciles us to the Father, it also means that we are reconciled to one another. And if we are reconciled to one another, that means work. I would rather us just be honest and say, I just don't want to do it. Then repent and then actually do it. Then say, let God and let go. Right? <clears throat> another one, these are more just common phrases. Another one, and, and, I, and I shared this on, on Wednesday night with a group of men, which is really cool. On, another one is, we all struggle. We're all sinners. We all struggle with sin. Por favor, callate. Like, take ownership instead, right? Like, take ownership. But here, here's the thing. Like, when we say we all struggle or we are all sinners, like, theologically, that's correct, right? For all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. That's, that's theologically correct. The heart behind philosophies like that, however, maybe not all of the time, but many of the times, the, the heart behind that is a lack of ownership, and really you're just trying to justify this decision, behavior, circumstance, whatever, because everyone else sins, but we actually don't take ownership of it. And is ownership important? I think ownership is gravely important because the whole point of Jesus entering into human history was reconciling us to the Father. And he did that by taking ownership of our mess. 
Jesus pays for our disobedience with his obedience. And finally, I don't I mean this is just a random phrase. Let's get your stuff together. Maybe pull yourself up by the bootstraps or do better. And again, a lot of these, you can pull some meat out from this and be like, yeah, I mean, I can, I can kind of see this in Scripture. My challenge, however, is to look at the heart behind some of these statements, behind some of these philosophies, and see that a lot of them really aren't rooted in the teachings of Scripture. And so when it comes to, yeah, get your stuff together, we alienate humility. We alienate thinking of ourselves less. I just got to work on me for a while, right? I just got to love me for this season. Look the Haggai's bro, right? Like, pursue humility. Like, the Bible teaches us to pursue humility and holiness so that we would be more like Jesus, not a better version of yourself, but more like Jesus. My concern is that when we forget about our identity in Christ and turn to other people or things or philosophies, rather than turning to Jesus, we nullify the death and work of Christ on the cross. What I mean when, uh, and this is actually from verse 21, what I mean when I say that we nullify the work of Christ on the cross, it's that we count it as void. We count it as something without value. Like these really cool quotes from scripture look really good on my hashtag, on my biography, and they look really good on my wall at my home, but there is really nothing rooted in them regarding my walk with Christ. And so when that happens and when we turn and forget about our identity and we try to wrap ourselves up in these other things, what you and I inevitably begin to preach is that why did Jesus come anyway? We could save ourselves. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. In verse 21, and I know I'm skipping ahead, but verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could save yourself, then what's the point of Jesus coming to die on the cross for sinners? Oftentimes, when we turn away from our identity, whether we are, we are neglecting it, we're ignoring it, we're listening to something that is louder than Jesus, oftentimes it is because you and I don't understand grace. And because you and I don't understand grace, we see the grace of God as a convenience. Man, Jesus died for my sins? How convenient! Thanks, God! And then you go do your own thing. So God's grace isn't a gift, it's a convenience. Oftentimes, God's grace uh, is used in arrogance. That, sure, we might not necessarily understand the grace of God, but I am better than you because I have it and you don't. We miss the point. So it doesn't just necessarily, identity doesn't necessarily have to mean that we take these hard swings to destructive or poor decisions or these hard swings to these different lifestyles. Sometimes it's right in front of us at the Christian bookstore, uh, on the Christian radio, on the Christian TV, in the church. Sometimes we see it and without actually grounding ourselves in the word of God and in the ministry of prayer, we say, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it. And so, rather than increase in godliness, we increase in immaturity. And so, in Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul brings us to a beautiful reminder. If that kind of beat you up, that wasn't me. Anyway, uh, Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul brings us to a beautiful reminder, not only of who we are in Christ, but how it came to pass. And so, before diving into that one verse, I want us to first understand grace. Because this entire verse is this beautiful summation of grace. And so we need to define grace first. We're going to define grace as unmerited favor from God toward sinners. I think it's up on the screen. Unmerited favor from God toward sinners. It's a loaded statement. That is that God extends favor to sinners 
while they are sinning. It is a gift that God extends to sinners that they can't earn, that they can't work for. You can't buy it. You can't just earn it. You can't save up for it. And for many of us, particularly myself, that's really hard. What do you mean I can't work for it or, or buy it or save up for it? Grace forces you and I to depend on him alone. Because it's not just this, hey, God died for your sins. It is something a lot deeper than that. It is unmerited favor from God to sinners while they are sinning. Present tense. It is a gift. The Christian life is summarized by grace. And so here's the main idea. I try to give you my main ideas every time. And I had like five this morning. I'm going to hopefully give you just this one and the rest will just be tweetable quotes. This one is, here's the main idea. Who you are, who you are has been determined by God's grace for you. Who you are in Christ has been determined by God's grace for you. You take that along with the definition of what grace is and then you ultimately have the purpose of grace. The purpose of grace is to glorify God. It is a gift that he has given sinners as they continue to sin. It is a gift that he has given that you and I have not earned, bought, paid for, or saved. And so it is a gift that we have that leads us to glorify God. As a result of that, the goal of grace is for you and I to be transformed. To be made more like Jesus. That goes against the grain of culture. Again, it's the new year. If you hashtag the gym or like a functional fitness or just the fitness industry in general, you're seeing a lot of like new year, new me. Be a better version of yourself. And as like six months come in when everybody's not going to the gym and they're depressed because they ate all sorts of Burger King, right? Like you're going to see that stuff come up again. And then you see it come up again in October because what happens in November, everybody eats all the turkey and all this stuff, right? Like it's a cycle, but the idea idea behind the cycle is to say, hey, you want to be better. You want to, you want to be a better version of yourself. Yet grace says, it's not that I want you to be a better version. It's that I have transformed you to be more like Jesus. And that's the beauty of grace. So as a result, I want us to look at the work of grace as shown to us, as shown to us by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2. And I'm going to summarize it this way. We're going to look at God's grace for you. We're going to look at God's grace in you. And we're going to look at God's grace through you. Okay? This is all from verse 20. Beginning with God's grace for you. This is what the Apostle Paul says. It's the first sentence. I have been crucified with Christ. The $5 word for what he is talking about is called justification. Justification, or the doctrine of justification, teaches, you're going you're to learn a lot, right? Teaches that we have been declared just or righteous before God, not based on our works or our merit, but by faith alone in Christ alone. So when Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, what he is saying is that his former life, all of his sin, all of who he used to be, all of what he used to do, all of that has been nailed to the cross with Jesus on his behalf. It is an echo of what he writes in 2 Corinthians when he goes on to say, he who knew no sin became sin. He is talking about Jesus. Being made righteous or declared just means that you have been forgiven because your sin, all of it, your former life has 
been nailed to the cross with Jesus on your behalf. The gift of God's grace for you is that Jesus lived in our stead, died in our place, paid for our penalty, reconciles us to God, and offers a grace that you and I cannot earn. This, this sentence, is the start of God's work for you. Number two, God's grace in you. Paul writes, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the doctrine of regeneration. A couple of weeks ago, we walked through a sermon series on the Holy Spirit, and the first week, the first sermon in that series was on regeneration. So if you want to know more about regeneration, go back to that. Here's what I'll say briefly. When it comes to regeneration, this is the work of God the Holy Spirit in bringing spiritually dead hearts to life. That's what Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work in dead hearts, bringing them to life. And so what happens when we are regenerated is that we receive, that's a, that's a very intentional word, we receive a new heart and a new mind, which means you and I are now free to worship God, free to love God, free to obey God, that we are a new creation, that we walk in freedom, that we walk in joy. It does not mean that we are perfect, but it does mean that we have been made new. That is the beauty of God's grace in you. That is the Holy Spirit at work in you, making you more into the image of Jesus. And then number three, God's grace through you. Paul continues, and the life I now live in the flesh, if you're like taking notes, I would underline, and the life I now live, and he continues, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A lot is going on. Here's what I'll say. In this, we see God's grace working through Paul. God's grace works through you. God's grace works for you. God's grace works in you. God's grace works through you. This is transformation. God's grace doesn't just forgive you, it transforms you. Things start to change. You have been given a new heart and a new mind, which means you have new desires. You obey God because you want to obey God. You obey God because you have been loved by God, not so that God would love you. Paul continues in that same sentence by saying, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's not being arrogant. He's not being pompous. He is preaching the gospel to himself. This is what God has done for me. This is what God is doing in me. And this is what God has done through me. That I don't live the old life I used to. I live a new life rooted in faith in the Son of God. Jesus did not die for you so that you would continue in your old life. That is a contradiction of what we see in Scripture as it pertains to transformation. If nothing has changed, then it might mean something else. Listen to the Apostle Paul once more in Romans 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, there's that word that we were talking about earlier, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That part of transformation involves discerning what the will of God is. Part of transformation involves discerning what is good and acceptable and perfect in light of God's will. We can't do that apart from him. 
And on top of that, we are in sin if we're constantly just looking at Scripture and Christ as this genie to just, how are you going to help me in this situation? What are you going to do for me there? That's called a transaction. God's grace works for us, it works in us, and it works through us. It works through us, and that means that you and I bring a means of God's grace into everything. Like that's literally the Christian life that we bring because God is working through us. You and I bring God's grace into everything. We bring God's grace into how we parent our children. We bring God's grace into how we interact with uh, coworkers or employees. We bring God's grace into situations that are dicey and hard. We bring God's grace as we interact with one another. We bring God's grace uh, into circumstances that might be challenging and difficult and might bring hardship. We bring God's grace into every aspect of life. And if we don't, if in this area, we do not, then we do not understand grace. And if we do not understand grace, then that might mean that you and I have been offended by grace. Because we're all about grace for us. We're all about grace in us. Now when it comes to grace through us, we're stepping on some toes. What you do is determined first by who you are. That's where it starts. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Who you are has been determined by God's grace for you. And so as a result, he's done a work for you. He's doing a work in you. He's going to do a work through you. The gift of grace is not only costly, but it forms how you and I live. And when we forget, ignore, or reject, or neglect what grace is, what grace means, we preach that Christ's work has no value. It is God's grace that keeps us running back to him. It is what sustains us. So, very briefly, I want to look at two, three kinds of people that might make grace difficult. And you're like, yeah, let me, let's talk about other people. That's probably you, right? Here it is. First one is, this is the first, first kind of person, individual that, that makes, it, makes it hard to embrace, understand grace. Uh, the first one is, a rebellious sinner, okay? The rebellious sinner is the one who says, I don't need Jesus, I can do it on my own, this doesn't matter, like God doesn't matter, the scripture doesn't matter, I can do this on my own, I can be good on my own. To an extent there's some reality, there's some truth to that, but nevertheless, they can do it on their own, they don't need Jesus, they are an individual who doesn't know Jesus, and that might be you, that you don't know Jesus, that you are in rebellion to him. You are exercising your free will and running and rebelling as far away from God as possible, okay? The second one is a religious sinner. So many sinners, right? <laughs> second one is a religious sinner, the religious sinner is the one who has the perfect Bible reading plan. You might have already printed it for 2020, right? That you have it got, you got it all together. That the church is wrong, the church doesn't know, I can love Jesus, I can follow Jesus, I can ultimately be better if people just did it my way. And I want to pause right there because there's a third one. To be fair... Both are sinners. Hope that's clear. Both are sinners. Both are fools. And both have been offended by grace. Let's look at Luke 15. 
This is the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to read the whole thing and drop some comments in, in between. Here we go. It's beginning in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So we got two boys, right? We got two boys. One of them, one young man, goes to the dad. And he's like, hey, man, tired of these rules? Tired? I, I can't. Ultimately, he's saying, I can't wait for you. Uh, I can't wait for you to die. Could I have my inheritance now? So Pops says, sure. Hooks him up with his inheritance. Homeboy leaves. Homeboy leaves and he blows it. Spends every dime, does everything he wants to do. He is in utter rebellion. He runs as fast and as far away from the father as possible. And then at some point that money runs out. So he goes and he goes and gets a job. He gets a job feeding pigs. And he's watching the pigs eat. And he's like, man, they eat better than I do. I kind of want some of that. We continue. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he don't want to live this way anymore. He makes a decision. I'm going to quit this job. I'm going to go back home. Maybe my dad will hook me up with a job. Maybe he'll hook me up with a job and I'll be treated better with his servants than what I'm doing here with these pigs. So he makes his way home, right? He makes his way home. And what we see in this parable is that the father has been waiting for the son to come. He has been waiting and wishing and hoping that the son would return. And my favorite part of that section is where we see that his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, right? It is exactly what Jesus does. The first thing I think about is, is Mark 6, when Jesus is coming off of the boat and this like, crowd of people come to Jesus and uh, Mark records that he saw them, had compassion on them, and he stayed with them. So he sees the need, he feels the need, and then he acts upon it. This father saw the need in his son, he felt the need, he had compassion, and he ran after his son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So as the son is trying to negotiate some things in his head, maybe dad will do this. Man, dad's going to want to talk about this. I've already like just spent everything. Dad runs after him. The father runs after him, doesn't even begin to address what the son shares, embraces him. And he says, my son is home. Turn on the grill, get some food for him, invite everybody. Here, my son has returned. He was always his son to begin with. And then he continues. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, 
These many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, in other words, he doesn't even acknowledge him as his brother anymore, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this is your brother. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Going back to the religious and the rebellious sinner. In the parable of the prodigal son, both were offended by grace. One wanted and did run as far and as fast as he could. And upon repenting and being met with the father or being reconciled to the father, the other one, the religious one, was upset and angry because grace isn't fair. And the father invites him into the house. Come to the party. Come see your brother. And he says, no, I'm not going to go. Why isn't he going to go? Because in the house, grace is found and he has found it offensive. At one point, there was a rebellious sinner. At another point, there is a religious sinner. And the point of the story is that at one point, the rebellious became the redeemed. He became a redeemed sinner because as he walked into the house or as he uh, was reconciled to the Father, he found grace. He found grace. Some of you are rebellious sinners running as far and as fast and as hard away from God. And like the story of the prodigal son, he invites you to receive his grace. He invites you to receive his grace. Some of you are religious sinners. Some of you are religious sinners. You stake your flag, your foundation, and your identity on what you have together, what you've done, how good you are, and you have forgotten the grace of God for you. Nevertheless, in the story, the father does not ignore the older brother. The father invites him into the house. Same thing with the religious sinner. He invites you into the house to receive grace. He invites you to come to him to remember his grace for you. Who you are has been determined by grace. And so if I could just exhort you for the last couple of minutes of our time, the first thing I would tell you, and here's what I would say, don't write this down, because I actually say this every sermon. The first thing I would say is, repent of your sin. If you're that rebellious sinner running, man, repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin and place your trust in Jesus and receive his grace right now. If you're that religious sinner, repent. Repent of your pride and your arrogance and your self-righteousness. Stop covering it up with Christianese jargon. Stop covering it up with stupid sayings on social media and instead repent and remember the grace of God for you. The second thing I would say is devote yourself to the ministry of the word of God and prayer. I mean, we, we want to be transformed. We want to hear God speak to us. And God meets us where we are in his word. 
Like there's, there's no other magic formula to it. It's that he meets us in his word. The psalmist says that the word of God is perfect, that it revives the soul. Simple, not easy. My hope is that we respond to the grace of God for us this morning. Let's pray. God, if I am honest, man, I could talk about grace, I could preach about grace, and I, and I still find it hard to embrace sometimes, if not most days. God, I also know that I'm, I'm not alone. And so, Lord, as, as, as you meet us where we are this morning, would you remind us Would you expose, better yet, let's go there. Would you expose the condition of our heart this morning? Would you expose it with your grace? Would you expose the condition of our heart with unmerited favor towards us sinners, even now while we are sinning? God, as we reflect on grace, may we reflect on it to embrace it so that we would be transformed by it, so that we would become more like Jesus. Lord, I know as we walk into the new year, it's about what are we going to do and how can we change. All of that's cool. We're not talking about that. We are starting with our identity. And our identity is determined by what you have done for us in Christ. So Lord, may the, may the cry of our heart be Galatians 2.20, that we have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live that is our new life, not our old life, but the, now, the life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, may we surrender ourselves to that gospel message this morning. Lord, as, as we continue to worship, Lord, we're gonna continue to respond. We're gonna start by responding by giving and then we're going to respond by um, communion, through communion, and then through song and the benediction. And so, Lord, as we continue to have uh, our minds prepped and our hearts prepped, uh, we, we come into this time of, of tithes and offerings. Lord, this is where we give you our stuff. This is, this is another example, another avenue of us denying ourselves. So may we do this to your glory and our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.